We are continuing with the sermon series through the first three chapters of Genesis, again now in chapter 2, beginning the reading at verse 18. Let us ask the Lord, who breathed out this word by the power of His Holy Spirit and has preserved it for us in Scripture, now to breathe upon us afresh so that we might have ears to hear, minds to to believe, hearts to receive, and respond to His Word. Let us pray. Our Father, we give You thanks that You are the God of truth, and you, Your Word is truth, and You speak the Word of truth and life and blessing to us through the Scripture. Grant us grace by the working of Your Spirit to enlighten the eyes of our hearts, and to give us spiritual understanding of your word and renew in us, O Lord, a resolve in gratitude to live according to it. Through Christ our Savior. Amen. The word of God, it is written. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to, to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. While he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. The rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now unto him who loves us, who has washed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all praise, honor, and glory forever and ever. Amen. This beautiful passage of Scripture overflows with divine instruction for our well-being, but this morning we have time only for three major points. I want you to see three things. First of all, I want you to see that the creation of the woman out of the rib of the man was the climactic act in God's work of creation, bringing God's work of creation to its very good completion. Secondly, I want you to see God's very good design and intention for the well-being of all humanity in the institution of marriage, the union of a man and woman in marriage. Thirdly, I want you to see Jesus in this passage. 
I want us to see the redemptive work of Jesus Christ revealed in the mystery of marriage. So three major points under which we'll follow various sub-points. Here we go. First, the creation of the woman out of the rib of the man was the climactic act of God's work of creation, bringing creation to its very good completion. This means that the woman was the crown of creation. She was, so to speak, figuratively, the finishing touch, as it were, the exclamation point of creation, and truly the focal point of creation. Everything leads up to this moment. Now, remember, in Genesis 1, we have that wide-angle, big-screen, macro view of God's work of creation. In Genesis 1.27, we read that God created man, humanity, in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Now, what's significant in that verse for our purposes this morning is the clear declaration that the female human is created in the image of God, equal with the male human in status, value, dignity, and honor as an image bearer of the Creator. For our purposes and our focal point today, please note that in the very first chapter of the Bible, the the woman is declared by God to have been created in the image of God. Take away for today. The Bible is not anti-woman. True biblical faith does not promote or produce the denigration of or the oppression of or injustice toward women. To the contrary, the Bible elevates and celebrates women as image bearers of God. Equal in status, dignity, and honor together with the man, both in Genesis 1 and now, as we'll see, especially in Genesis 2. In this passage, beginning at verse 18, there is a narrative tension. There's an unresolved problem, if you will. Having created the man out of the dust of the ground, the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And so you see, the author, the divine author, the Holy Spirit is inviting us to look with expectant anticipation for the resolution of this problem. What kind of helper fit for him will the Lord God make for that man? Let's pause right there on that phrase, helper fit for him. The word helper is not a derogatory word of denigration. After all, we call God our helper, do we not? The point here is that the man is alone, and that is not good, because there is something missing, which renders him, in a way, incomplete. The helper fit for him will be one who complements, that's complement with an E, complements, completes him. So this helper will therefore be someone who is like him but yet is different from him. Someone who is his 
opposite, not in the sense of being in opposition to him, in conflict, but opposite him as in a mirror image. The same, but different in a corresponding, complementary way. Hold that thought. At this point in the narrative, we have what seems like an interruption. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. So we might envision a kind of zoo parade. I would have loved to have been there, wouldn't you? With Adam viewing and naming the animals as they passed by. Hmm. Elephant. Horse. Dog. Tiger. Wonderful companions all. Wouldn't you love to have a tiger as a pet? But there's a problem. It's not what Adam was looking for. So the scripture says, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So there it is again, that dramatic tension. The unresolved problem in the narrative. Now what? You see, it's almost as though I think maybe it was the case that the Lord God, by bringing the animals to Adam, was in a way setting Adam up, increasing the longing in his heart, impressing upon Adam's heart the sense of his own individual incompleteness, indeed creation's incompleteness. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman. Watch carefully. You remember that when God created the beasts of the field, he did so by the power of his word, speaking them into existence. Let the earth bring forth living creatures. There was no specificity about the making of particular creatures. It was accomplished in general, so to speak. Multitudes of animals, male and female, coming forth from the earth. Not so with the human creature. You remember that when the Lord God formed the man, he did so with great care and deliberation and personal attention by his own hand, so to speak, as a potter forming a vessel of clay and then breathing the breath of life into his nostrils. Now, think about this. The Lord God could have formed the woman in exactly the same way. Could he not? Yes. He could have taken another lump of clay, fashioned a female human, breathed life into her, but he didn't create her that way. Why not? Well, what if God had created her that way? What would have been the result? A male human and a female human, independent of each other, separate from each other, with no organic connection to one another, perhaps in competition with one another. 
like a male lion and a lioness, like a bull and a cow. That's not how God created the man and the woman. God created the woman, the crown jewel of creation, out of the man so that both the man and the woman would immediately and intuitively know that they were quite literally made for each other indeed so that they would see themselves in each other other as belonging to one another and therefore cherish and care for each other in an indissoluble union of heart, soul, mind, and body throughout their life on earth, one flesh. The man and the woman were different but the same, same but different. And it is that sameness and that differentness together which enables a true union. It is a given fact of nature and of physics and of physical anatomy. Things which are completely different cannot form a true union. Things which are exactly the same cannot form a true union. The man and the woman were the same but different, different but the same, created for true union, not only of body, but also of heart and soul and mind. Now, in almost all of the wedding ceremonies I officiate, I read a passage from Matthew Henry's commentary on Genesis, this passage. Matthew Henry was a Presbyterian minister in England in the 1600s and into the 1700s. Concerning the making of the woman from the rib of the man, he wrote, She was not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected near his heart, to be beloved. Sounds like something that might have been written in about 1974. <laughs> in fact, it was written more than 300 years ago based upon the wisdom of divine revelation in Holy Scripture. The account of the Lord's God, Lord God's making of the woman out of the rib of the man is not a silly just-so story, nor a primitive myth, nor a relic of an ancient culture oppressive of women. To the contrary, the biblical account reveals to us the wisdom and love of the infinite and eternal Creator who made the woman in a deliberate and in intentional fashion so that she might be treasured and cherished and celebrated by the man as the crown jewel of creation. Genesis 2 teaches us that the creation of the woman out of the rib of the man was the climactic act in God's work of creation, bringing God's work of creation to its very good completion. Now that gets us now to major point number two, God's very good design and intention for the well-being of all humanity in the union of a man and woman in marriage. Genesis 2 records the first wedding ceremony. 
That's what we have here. Um, you see, at the end of verse 22, referring to the Lord God, it says, He brought her to the man. He brought her to the man. Bum, 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 bum. Get that? And when the man beheld his bride, you just envision that. When the man beheld his bride, he burst forth with the first love poem in human history. Or we might suppose the first wedding vow in human history. This at last, at last, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Which means she was made out of me, for me, and by implication I was made for her. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Hebrew, she shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. Now John Calvin comments tenderly on the significance of the woman's having been taken out of the man. Calvin writes, in this manner Adam was taught to recognize himself in his wife as in a mirror. Something was taken from Adam in order that he might embrace with greater benevolence a part of himself. He lost, therefore, one of his ribs. But instead of it, a far richer reward was granted him since he obtained a faithful associate of life for he now saw himself, who had before been imperfect, rendered complete in his wife. So much more on which we could comment here, but let me emphasize one principle which still applies to married couples today, which is that even though today wives are not made out of husbands' ribs, the Scripture teaches us this enduring principle that husbands and wives ought really to look upon one another as though they literally were. As though they literally were. Take this passage and see yourself in it so that with spiritual eyes, husbands and wives actually see themselves in the other. This is the ultimate significance of the one flesh union. Marriage is not a contract between two independent individuals. Marriage is the union of two persons who become one. When Bill marries Jane, Bill doesn't remain Jane. Bill. Bill becomes Bill and Jane. When Jane marries Bill, she doesn't remain Jane. She becomes Jane and Bill. One flesh. Union. So the first wedding of man and woman reveals to us God's intention also for the propagation of the human race and the establishing of order in human society upon the foundation of the marriage covenant. This is how God builds humanity and human society. The family, the marriage of a man and a woman is the basic building block. Of human society. Destroy that foundational building block and you destroy society. 
And so with reference to future marriages, the Scripture says, therefore, that is, because God designed, defined, and ordained marriage as the union of a man and a woman, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Marriage is the basic building block of all human society which God ordained for the well-being of humanity in general and for the building up of His church. That His people might bear children whom they raise and nurture in the instruction of the Lord to His glory and the advance of His kingdom upon the earth. Now think about that biblical vision, that doctrine of marriage. And think about how our contemporary culture hates it and rails against it. From the proponents of no-fault divorce to the broad acceptance, indeed now the normalization of cohabitation without marriage, to the radical feminists who deny the basic differences between men and women and who declare marriage to be a social structure of oppression, to the gender revolutionaries who tell us now that there really is no such thing as male and female because gender is merely a social construct which we make up and determine for ourselves, to those who redefine marriage to include so-called same-sex marriage in which there can be no real and true union according to the design of the Creator. These all are expressions of fallen humanity's tragic confusion about what it means to be human, about what it means to be male and female created in the image of God, and about God's good intention and purpose for the flourishing of all humanity by means of the divinely ordained institution of marriage. Now in Genesis 2, prior to Adam's sin, prior to the curse upon Adam and the creation, we see what God intended for the marital relationship, indeed the good and beautiful relationship which He gave to the man and the woman. Verse 25 says, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Naked and not ashamed. Now this verse speaks about much more than physical nakedness. Being naked but not ashamed describes a relationship of complete transparency with nothing to hide, nothing to fear, a relationship of complete acceptance and perfect trust. There was nothing to keep them from one another. There was no obstacle to intimacy. You see? In the very beginning, God's very good design and intention for marriage is that it be such a union, it is a relationship of such complete security in which the man feels affirmed and the woman feels cherished and safe in which they, as husband and wife, can enjoy life together to the fullest, to the glory of God. 
But we don't live in the unspoiled paradise of the Garden of Eden, do we? As we learn from Genesis 3, Adam's sin against God brought immediate negative consequences into his marriage and into our marriages. Every marriage since the time of Adam's sin has been the marriage of two fallen people, corrupted, broken, troubled by a sinful nature. You are married to a fallen person with a sinful nature. And so is your spouse. (laughs) That's not an excuse. It's just the reality. Our sin is what breaks the trust, damages the intimacy, undermines the security in our marriages. But the problem is not marriage. Marriage is God's good gift to humanity. The problem is us. That gets us to the third major point of this sermon. I want us to see Jesus in this passage. I want us to see the redemptive work of Jesus Christ revealed in the mystery of marriage. In his letter to the Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul gives marriage counsel to husbands and wives based on Genesis 2. Paul's instructions to husbands and wives in the light of the gospel of Christ by the grace of the Holy Spirit is, is so that we might experience redemption from the curse in our marriages by the grace of God through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. So that even in our fallenness and our imperfection, our marriage relationships might be more nearly restored to what God intended. But Paul goes even deeper than that in Ephesians 5 when he speaks of the marriage union, quoting Genesis 2, the two shall become one flesh. He says, this mystery is a profound one. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So the marriage bond of husband and wife is, says Paul, an illustration, a living parable of the mystical union of Christ and his bride, the church. But but how does the marriage of Adam and Eve point to the union of Christ and the church in this remarkable way? And now, again, I'm quoting Matthew Henry. Adam was a figure, a foreshadowing. Adam was a figure of him that was to come. The second Adam, the true Adam, Jesus. For out of the side of Christ, the second Adam, out of the side of Christ, his spouse, the church, was formed. When he slept the sleep, the deep sleep of death upon the cross, during which his side was opened, and there came out blood and water, blood to purchase his church and water to purify it. 
you see, the creation of the woman out of the rib of the man points us to our own redemption. It, it, it's showing us the death of Jesus on the cross so that his bride might come forth out of his sleep of death. And if indeed we, through faith in Christ, are members of Christ's body, the church, then we are members of his corporate bride for whom he died, who was formed out of the the wound in his side. And therefore, we are indeed, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, we are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. We're one with Christ, united with him, eternally secure with him. In whom and through whom, indeed, yes, even we sinners in and of ourselves, yes, in his presence, we can Be naked and not ashamed. Because He has redeemed us by His death. His blood has bought us, purchased us. And the water of His Spirit has washed us and cleansed us from all our sins so that we, in union with Him, might be without spot, holy and without blemish, in splendor before Him. That's who Eve was, and that's who all who are created in Christ Jesus are. Dear beloved, place your faith in Jesus Christ who loves you and gave himself for you. And if you're living in marriage today, in his name, recommit yourself to your marriage And recommit your marriage to be a living illustration, a parable of the union of Christ and His bride, the church, to the glory of His name. Amen. Let us pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for the glorious gospel of Your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. who from heaven came and sought us to be his holy bride. And for our life, he died, that we might have life eternal. Grant us this grace, we pray, to believe what you say and to live in accordance with it. In Jesus' name, amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us stand to affirm our faith. This morning from the Heidelberg Catechism, in the sections on the providence of God as we are in the thanksgiving season and noting God's good and faithful providence to us. Christians, what do you understand by the providence of God? Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, 
and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty. All things, in fact, come to us, not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. How does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? We can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from His love. All creatures are so completely in His hand that without His will, they can neither move nor be moved. 